So after watching the, um, couldn't even call it slow motion, it was just sort of day-by-day fast motion train wreck of Charlie Sheen's life on television day after day after day this week. I've never seen anything like this. So sustained. I mean, we've seen people really come apart in public before, but never quite anything like like this. It's an odd mixture of compassion and also something else that I think is in here that had me thinking of uh, a musical named Avenue Q. And if you know Avenue Q, let's put that up there. These are the people, the furry little people and the actual adult sized people who are in Avenue Q. Avenue Q is... How can I explain this if, if you don't uh, know what Avenue Q is? It is a Sesame Street meets South Park. <laughs> For a child of the 70s, as an adult who came of age in the 90s, it was the Broadway musical I have been waiting for forever. I've seen it twice, once in New York on Broadway, once when the touring show came here in Philadelphia, and also because I was a kid and I loved the Muppet show as well, too. These are the Muppets grown up a little bit more, let's say. It is a very, um, it's a very progressive vision. It's like Sesame Street, all different races and classes and different sexual orientations, all different kind of people, very multicultural, living together, trying to be together all right. It is also incredibly and deliciously offensive. It's very R-rated. Uh, it's... Um, has songs with the humans and the monsters singing little things like everyone's a little bit racist sometimes doesn't mean we go around committing hate crimes if we all could just admit that we're all racist a little bit and stop being so pc maybe we could live in harmony and talking about why the internet has exploded there's one song from one character in particular who simply song goes the internet is for porn and there's even, there's even a, at the end, when, you know, the story doesn't conclude, um, there's even this one little final note, very beautiful. And by the way, it's all incredibly singable. All these songs just insert yourself right in their consciousness. Called For Now, a song about the nature of impermanence. If you smile, it only lasts a little while. Life may be scary, but it's only temporary. But the song I was really thinking of today is simply called schadenfreude. Particularly seeing Charlie Sheen and his life unraveled through his own efforts, and also because there's always someone wanting to exploit you to make some money. Schadenfreude, probably the quickest way we could say it, is that, if you've never heard the word before, it is joy at the misfortune of others. And not just joy, gleefulness at the misfortune of others. Dennis Miller, before he was a lame NFL commentator and an even more lame political commentator, back when he was just a comedian, he should have stayed there in my opinion, he did say, schadenfreude, leave it to the Germans to invent a new vocabulary for human misery and human pain. That's what schadenfreude is very much like. It is really finding great pleasure when other people trip and fall and don't do well. This kind of pleasure is very, very different from happiness, from meaningful happiness, which is only what makes happiness real, that there is some component of true and deep meaning in it. Our society right now, all you have to do is get online for just five or ten minutes. We are awash in schadenfreude and waiting for other people to 
screw up in this age of excess and overexposure. It seems that with famous people in our society, we swing between two poles very widely. We may not do this individually, but the culture as a whole, between idolizing them and yearning almost to be them, and sometimes while we yearn to be them, thinking that our own lives aren't that much, and then vilifying them for all the ways and all the things that they have done wrong. Schadenfreude is antithetical to happiness, because for pleasure to be transformed into happiness, it must partake of what the Buddhist monk and also the Ph.D., In cellular genetics, Mathieu Ricard said, he's one of um, the Dalai Lama's French translators. He has been referred to, because they've studied his brain, they've studied his meditation. He's referred to by some people as the happiest person in the world. He knows this stuff, and he's cultivated it within him. He says that for true happiness to be sustainable, it must always be tied to deeper humane values like compassion and kindness and altruism. The exact opposite of the things that we hear in Schadenfreude. And by the way, in Avenue Q, that song is sung by the adult version, quote unquote, of Gary Coleman. Probably few people who I grew up alongside was the object of more Schadenfreude than Gary Coleman, whose life came apart and sadly finally ended in public. In the context of this time, our time. In which excess, and yes, real success, is celebrated, and failure is so incredibly public. I believe that part of who we are right now has lost touch with that deeper understanding of happiness that makes pleasure sustainable. Today I want to talk about some of the values that I think are missing in our society and in our culture right now in this difficult time, in this angry time, in this time when we're trying to wrestle with some really important decisions and doing it in such a way that it seems we're having a real tough time talking to each other. But perhaps through some of these lenses, even if we can't make the whole culture happier, we can understand our own sources of happiness within that culture more profoundly. Because in this week... Beyond the award show that was, beyond the celebrity flop that is Charlie Sheen's life, there was real, important, tough news going on. We are having society-wide in states and nationally moments of reckoning that are long delayed about who counts and what do we count and who do we value and what do we value. Some of you know most particularly of what's going on in Wisconsin, where there is a move to basically strip the public service unions of most of the rights to collective bargaining. Now, I grew up in a very affluent family. I wanted for absolutely nothing. And my family only did better the older I got. I don't think I had anything to do with that. But I was able to enjoy it. But my father was only a few decades removed from having his family separated during the Great Depression. When many families struggled, just as many families are struggling right now, when his family left him in Ohio and his parents and baby younger brother flew off, not flew, drove to Texas to escape their creditors. The only thing that saved my, his family, his family, was that his father, my grandfather, was lucky enough to get a job during World War II in the Brooklyn Navy Yards as a union plumber. That saved their family and kept them intact. 
So whether what's going on in Wisconsin or whether it's the budget battles that are part of our nation right now. And by the way, I laid this both my unhappiness, at least at the feet of both the president and the Congress. The president who barely and then only in passing mentioned the word poverty or poor people in his State of the Union. At a time in which 20 percent of American children now live in poverty. Maybe you know that already, or maybe you're hearing that for the first time. 20%, one in five American children live in poverty right now. Amidst all our wealth. And yet the discussion we seem to be having at the national level is about what we can take away from those who already have so little to begin with. What programs can we cut that will hurt those who already are struggling. And almost no conversation, or very little conversation, about what the responsibilities might be of those who are the most well-off in our society in this time of such challenging need. And so I thought I'd start here today, or use some words from the person who is literally, I believe, he's either number one or number two, the most well-off person in America. Warren Buffett. I'm going to read from the letter that Warren Buffett wrote when he decided that he was going to eventually give away 99% of his vast fortune. Now, even that 1% is a lot more than most of us will probably ever see. But he decided he would give away 99%. This is the open letter that he wrote explaining his choice and why he was doing it. He said, my wealth has come from a combination of living in America some lucky genes, and compound interest. Both my children and I won what I call the ovarian lottery. For starters, the odds against my 1930 birth taking place in the U.S. were at least 30 to 1. And my being male and white also removed huge obstacles that a majority of Americans born faced. My luck was accentuated by my living in a market system that sometimes produces distorted results, though overall it serves our country well. I've worked in an economy that rewards someone who saves the lives of others on a battlefield with a medal, rewards a great teacher with thank you notes from parents, but rewards those of us who can detect the mispricing of securities with sums reaching into the billions. In short, he concludes... Fate's distribution of long straws is wildly capricious. What I love about Warren Buffett's words right here is that he understands his wealth in context and in time and in place. And because of a certain set of circumstances that might not have happened elsewhere as he prospered so much. It's a particular time in a particular place that values particular people with particular skills and values them in a particular way. And he knows that and is conscious about it. I think I hear echoes in his words of what James Luther Adams, the great Unitarian ethicist of the previous century, said when he said there is no such thing as the immaculate conception of an idea. Warren Buffett might extend that a little bit more and said there is no such thing as the immaculate conception of a vast fortune. While knowing that he has gifts, he does not buy into this myth 
I think one of the most damaging, both economic and also spiritual myths that there is, which is that there's such a thing as a self-made man or woman or person. There is a whole system that allowed him to prosper. And so I want to extend his understanding of gifts and talents and context to lead us into a conversation that our society does not talk about very much. What is owed back to the culture that has allowed people like Warren Buffett to prosper so much? What made that success possible in the first place? It is a question about justice. It is a question about how much and for whom and about which lives matter the most. Too often in our society, we are only handed seemingly infantile choices. That to have this conversation is to be branded a socialist. I'm not. I like capitalism. I think it's got incredible imperfections. And at the same time, we live in a democracy that should allow us to pay attention to those imperfections in the same way that Warren Buffett just did. And to ask that question, what role does justice or should justice play? I believe we can be both and in this conversation that we can still, as we have always honored in this country, individual initiative and merits and talent and also ask that question about basic fairness the kind of basic fairness that i believe is violated when we hear about statistics that one in five american children lives in poverty there is never any absolutely correct way to answer this question but i think at least we have to ask it and so few politicians are even asking it right now as if a whole class millions of americans don't even exist Malcolm Gladwell, some of you know that name, wrote books like The Tipping Point, talking about how things grow in society, how changes start, how trends begin. He wrote an article, I think it was last October's New Yorker, and it was a very simple kind of question. Why, in this age, do some very talented people get paid so incredibly much? Why is that happening? And sometimes completely irrespective of actual performance. One of the stories he talks about is by the guy who was the head of Home Depot a number of years ago, resigned from his position. His board actually was not very happy with him, but they allowed him a few years before to write into his contract the kind of golden parachute that allowed him when he left with people not happy about his performance to get a final payout of two hundred million dollars. One of the things that Malcolm Gladwell talks about in this article is that 30, 40, 50 years ago, it was not the same. CEOs, people who did well, did not live with such vast sums of wealth that they were being paid in the same way that in the last few decades we have come to accept as just, even if we don't like it, well, quote unquote, the cost of doing business. Gladwell, who talks a lot about trends, also understands a very old-fashioned virtue here which is that our society, he says, has shifted to a frame of meaning that is about greed. That we often do not ask the question, how much is enough? Versus the question that especially people who are wildly talented and compensated or overcompensated ask, which is how much can I get? Now, Gladwell being that he likes to find antecedents and seeds that lead to wider things in society, starts his analysis in baseball. 
That got me paying attention in this article. Baseball, 30, 40, 50 years ago, had an incredibly unjust system. If you played baseball, you were basically a decently, not wildly paid, a decently paid indentured servant. If you wanted not to take what was being offered to you, you had another choice. You could just sit out. There was no collective bargaining. And yet what Gladwell says is that process of baseball unionizing and allowing their players to have more power, a good thing, has led to a system. And I see this in sports all the time in which there has been this growing and growing and growing distance that leads to such things like schadenfreude. That leads to resentment between those who might have less and those who have a lot. And I see the most difference when I go to a minor league baseball game versus a major league baseball game. This will be the fourth year this spring that we will have a Wellsprings outing to the Reading Phillies. I have never, and I've probably been to 10, maybe 15 Reading Phillies games in my life. I have never seen one fight. I have never seen anyone ejected for public drunkenness. People are well behaved there. There's not nearly as much boorish behavior that we see at major league games. Phillies fans, my Phillies friends always like to tell me about this. This is the reason that Cliff Lee's a Philly right now, not a Yankee. And this happened, and it's disgusting. But last year in the playoffs when Cliff Lee was pitching for the Texas Rangers, some Yankees fans around them, probably drunk, found out where they were sitting and started to spit on Cliff Lee and the people, and Cliff Lee's, excuse me, Cliff Lee's wife. Now, Phillies fans, I am not going to let you off the hook here. Just last year, some of you might know this. There was a young man, a 20-something man, clearly very intoxicated, very drunk, who was ejected and then arrested for intentionally vomiting on a 10-year-old girl and her family. There have been two murders at Citizens Bank Park in the last few years. For me, the difference between that feeling what I get at a minor league baseball and some of the anger, the resentment, the schadenfreude, and also the exact opposite, which is really just the other side of the coin, the idolization of the people playing the game. The difference is in the distance. The difference is how and how wildly overvalued the players on the field are. In a minor league baseball game, you get the sense that there's people who are invested in the whole process. The winning and the losing part, yes, it matters, but it is not the only thing that matters. Whereas in the pro sector, it seems to be the only thing that counts. For me, as a true baseball fan, as someone who has loved the game, who will watch even when the Yankees are not playing, I love the whole game. And I love going to games because it's about the whole experience, the totality experience. The guys are selling the hot dogs and the pretzels and the drinks and the guys who take care of the field and the players, of course, yes. And of course, those players will always earn more and they should. I'm going to bring something a little close to home here. Derek Jeter. I have grown up into adulthood with him as the shortstop for the New York Yankees. This year, he had to take a pay cut. I hope he will survive. Last year, it was $21 million. This year, he's only making $17 million. Last year, the average pay that Derek Jeter had per game was roughly, give or take a few thousand, $135,000 a game. If you are a hot dog salesperson in the New York area, a good day will net you about $150. That is a ratio of roughly, not quite, but roughly. For every $1 that the person who sells a hot dog earns, Derek Jeter will earn about a thousand. One to a thousand. 
the talent will always earn more. But it didn't used to be this way. And I believe it reveals something about our society that I think is a source of unhappiness for many. Not resentment. I'm not resentful that Derek Jeter has a good agent, got himself money. I think there's something wrong with the entire system. What would it look like if that pay scale for Derek Jeter and the person who sold hot dogs was, I don't know, something more reasonable, maybe just 500 to 1 or 250 to 1? Something that recognized that as I enjoy a baseball game, the health of the whole contributes to my enjoyment of each part. There are a bunch of different attitudes and values that reveal our understanding of other people's work. And I'm going to show you a chart right now, and they partake of a different, few different ways. You'll see this right now along this axis here. This is about some beliefs, scarcity or abundance. Along the top, you'll see passive versus active. The first one is comparative. That is both a passive and a scarce way of viewing other people's work in relationship to our own. For me, the most psychologically insightful commandment was the one, for us they're not commandments that we have to do, I would say invitations, insights, that said, thou shalt not covet. I believe for all the moments in life that we covet another person's life, we are living their fiction rather than living the truth of our reality. There is no single way, no single way that we will ensure ourselves greater unhappiness than by living our lives in comparison with other people. Oh, they're so much happier than I am. They have it all. I have nothing. They've got it all together. I can barely get out of bed in the morning. And by the way, this comparative way of living it actually influences, not in real numbers, the value of what we put on the value that we make. But it's when we find out what our neighbors make, that is what starts to get us worried. It's not what we make in actual numbers that determines our happiness or unhappiness. But if we start to understand, well, ooh, this colleague, they're doing better than me, or this neighbor, they're doing better than me, or they're doing worse than me and I can feel better than them, that is one of the worst ways for us to sustain our happiness in this life. This anxiety about status that stands at the very heart of who we are living, comparative lives, always comparing ourselves to other people, is the surest way to misery. The second way, which is both active and also believing in scarcity and competitiveness. Now, let me say this. I am a very competitive person. I don't like to play board games unless I know I can win at that board game. It's not something I am proud of. I have used my competitiveness here at Wellsprings. You don't launch a new spiritual community unless you got a competitive streak. And I have to be honest with you at times, because we've done things somewhat differently here at Wellsprings and other people would have had me do it. I have sometimes used that as fuel. But a very small amount of the time. Because ultimately, living solely through competition is believing in win-lose, is believing that I win and you lose, or you win and I lose. And that's working back into that comparative way of being. It is believing in scarcity even as we are choosing to use our talents and ultimately does not leave many, for many of us, and in our society I think this is true, room for those who Jesus called the least of my brothers and sisters 
And to recognize, as Jesus said back then over 2,000 years ago, that what you do to the least of these, you are also doing to me. Recognizing the connections between us that Warren Buffett talked about. Bringing it a little bit more modern. One of my favorite bands, the Avid Brothers, talking a song, singing a song called, very simply, Incomplete and Insecure. About a guy who's trying to understand how he succeeds in this life and is trying to move away from comparison and competitiveness towards a deeper kind of communion. And he says, well, I could tell all the people that all of this success is a direct reflection on me. That is that competitive streak that we alone individually are only responsible. The third, appreciative. It is abundant and distant, somewhat passive. But it partakes of the positive emotions. It is the opposite of schadenfreude. And then in that, we can look at another person's success. I'm sure we've all had this experience. Looking at another person's success and really feeling good for them. It is related to that experience of true joyfulness that allows us to celebrate what another person is doing. And then finally, the fourth. The spirits of being cooperative or living in cooperation. This is one of the true cornerstones of living a happy life. It is abundant and active. It is recognizing that none of us becomes who we are solely through our own efforts, but through being together and working together. In a cooperative way of viewing our lives, we see, we see that creation is not just ours to partake of, it is ours to give to as well. In a cooperative way of viewing our lives, we focus not just on justice as something that we have to do as an obligation, but justice as the study of how is it that we could allow everyone and invite everyone to flourish in such a way that doesn't leave us out and also includes our happiness as well. I've said the last few weeks, and I truly believe that the opposite of happiness is not sadness. The opposite of happiness is loneliness. If you want to see the picture of loneliness, live in the comparative zone for a while. We want to take a look at what happiness looks like. Aspire to live a life of true cooperation with creation and with other people. It is essential in sustaining our happiness. And I wanted to share with you right now something that someone gifted me with in Wellspring. Someone who... I think lives out the meaning in this one particular small way I'm going to share with you right now of the meaning of what we talk about that freedom reaches its fulfillment with each other. That's what we're talking about with cooperation. It came from last year originally when my wife and I, having never traveled to Europe together, decided to take a trip for our 40th birthdays to Rome. And one night we were standing on the top floor of our hotel, took this little picture extending out over Rome of St. Peter's at night. And because nothing in life is ever finished, it's just waiting to be transformed into something else, Mick McAndrews did something with it that I did not expect at all and built from the value, I won't say the small value of this, something new and pretty cool and pretty beautiful. Mick, would you come forward? Thank you, Reverend Ken. It's an honor and a privilege to share the stage with you this morning. Um, for me, uh, happiness has always come easy. 
but I don't take that for granted. I recognize that I'm blessed with good health, a loving and healthy family, um, and friends, all of whom I really uh, treasure. Um, but that's not why Ken asked me to join you this morning. And as it turns out, um, in a surprising way, rather unexpectedly and unknowingly, Ken and Teresa and I collaborated recently to create what we'd like to think of as more. Um, the story begins with Ken and Teresa's trip to Italy, as Ken already noted. And when they got back, they posted some of their images on Facebook. Where else? <laughs> um, and I looked at them, and I saw this image, and it absolutely struck me. Um, it's not one of the typical images you might see of Rome, where you have the ruins or the Colosseum or ornately carved marble statues. It's really um, just a stunning but simple sunset over the city landscape as it transitions from the hustle and bustle of daily life into the mystery and intrigue of the night. <laughs> when I saw it, for me at least, it meant that it was an image that needed to be painted. And I'm an amateur but passionate watercolor painter, so that is something that I needed to undertake. Um, from a technical standpoint, there was very little preparation, very little drawing, make an attempt to get the Basilica Dome somewhat accurate, but it really required a rather reckless um, approach to painting um, and loose, bold, uncompromised brush strokes and more of a passionate approach to painting and an attempt to capture with insight what this image means rather than in any way trying to capture the actual um, literal interpretation. So we painted, and I rather like the outcome. And what do I like about it? I like the fact that it captures what I like to call a visual language. But this image doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Ken and Teresa. It is their experience, um, their creation, um, and it belongs to them. And I'm happy to say that they are the proud owners. I hope they're the proud owners <laughs> of, of, of this image today. But if I can sidestep for just a minute and talk about visual language again, um, I and seven pilgrims meet on Wednesday nights for two hours in our Painting from the Heart springboard, and we are doing some amazing work together. We meet at 7 o'clock. We're fresh. We're ready. We have our stuff. Um, we sit down. We center. We go through a little bit of art discussion, and then we paint. And if you were to see us by 8 o'clock, we have tarp all over the Wellsprings office. We have tables. We have pallets. We have paint. We have brushes. We have water. We have tissues. We have sponges. It's mayhem. There's water flying and paint flying. And there's, oh, no, no. Ooh, look at that. Mm, interesting. Look, hand me that reaching back and forth across the table. But by 9 o'clock, we've really created some rather amazing work. At least that is my sincere opinion. Um, so I'm very, very grateful to everyone participating in the springboard for the amazing work that you are doing. But back to the topic at hand um, and how to be happy. For me, I find the greatest joy in the simplest of things. It is really believing that giving is better than receiving. It's the simple joy in a warm smile, a firm handshake, a loving hug, spending time with good friends, meeting new people, and establishing new friendships. It's about growing spiritually, and it's about having the opportunity to attempt to achieve something that sounds so easy on the surface, but is really a lifelong endeavor, and that would be living with presence. And so it is that I believe it's our charge to use 
our gifts, share our abundance, and to nurture happiness together in community. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mick. I think that the arts of creation is found through the mechanism of our cooperation. It is to recognize that in so many ways, conscious and unconscious, creation is a gift given into our hands for safekeeping and also intentional sharing. It is to recognize, and I think we heard that in what Warren Buffett said, and we certainly heard it what you, Mick, said, that the deepest charge in this creation comes from the ability to be thankful for the relationships that help us become ourselves. That the art of happiness is to be able to say at the end of a day, the end of a week, the end of a year, and finally at the end of a life, how have I, how have you, how have we together abetted the work of creation through using our talents and our gifts and our love so that we can flourish and others can flourish. And in that way, knowing, if we can answer that, yes, in small ways and large, that we are truly and finally and never alone. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Divine spark of each of our lives, may we live in such a way that we allow that spark to be bared forth as light. And to perceive ourselves in such a way that we see that light in others. Whatever justice there is in this life, may we pursue it consciously, knowing that if we are called to flourish as individuals, that other people have that same right as well. Whatever compassion there is in this life, may we pursue it with that same conscientiousness, knowing that others' lives and others' work is just as important as our own. May we recognize in some of the largest ways and in some of those smallest ways the connections that bind each to all and bring forth the artfulness and the immense and infinite value of each and every one of our lives. Amen.